0: from kqed in san francisco this is forum i'm scott schaefer in today for alexis madrigal on this juneteenth holiday we're going to reflect on its meaning how it came to be and how it fits into our ongoing national conversation about race equity and justice juneteenth commemorates the end of slavery news of which took two years after president lincoln signed the emancipation proclamation to reach slaves in Galveston, Texas. This hour, we'll talk about Juneteenth celebrations around the Bay Area, and we wanna hear from you. How are you marking the holiday? What does it mean to you and your family? And what, if anything, does it say about where we are as a nation in the midst of national upheaval and division? That's next on Forum, right after this news. From KQED in San Francisco, welcome to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, and today for Alexis Madrigal. Well, to many, this morning's parade celebrating the Golden State Warriors NBA championship is the most exciting event in town. But let's remember that today is also a federal Juneteenth holiday, marking June 19, 1865. That's the day word that the Civil War had ended finally reached people who were enslaved in Galveston, Texas. For many decades, a lot of states, including California, have marked Juneteenth as a a state holiday, but President Biden signed legislation creating the new federal holiday last summer in the wake of George Floyd's murder. This hour, we're talking about the evolution of Juneteenth as a holiday and what it means in 2022, with so much division in our country over, well, just about everything, it seems, but especially over issues like race, voting rights, and criminal justice reform. And we do want to hear from you this hour how you're marking the day with friends and family or did over the weekend and what you're thinking about on this Juneteenth holiday. Let me tell you who is with us. We have Barbara Krauthammer. She is dean of the College of Humanities and Fine Arts and a professor of history at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Professor Krauthammer, good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you. You bet. And also with us, James Taylor, Professor of Political Science at the University of San Francisco. He is also a member of the Reparations Task Force in San Francisco. Professor Taylor, good morning to you as well.
2: Good morning, Scott.
0: And also joining us, Orlando Williams. He's a board member with the Berkeley Juneteenth Festival. We'll be talking about that one, which is, I think, one of the oldest, if not the oldest, in Northern California. Orlando, good morning and welcome to you. Let me begin with you, Professor Krauthammer. Give us an overview of Juneteenth. Uh, You know, I mentioned it at the top, of course, but, you know, how has it evolved over the years?
1: Sure. So Juneteenth has evolved um, from really a a regional celebration, right, primarily in Texas, Louisiana, and the surrounding area there, um, to a, a national recognition um, of the end of slavery, but more than that, I think, of a long freedom fight in Black communities. Um, I, the histories of emancipation celebrations predate Juneteenth, in fact. Um, African Americans across the continent um, had been celebrating the Emancipation Proclamation since 1863, for example. Hmm. Um so yeah so there's a much longer history of freedom celebrations and obviously the fight for freedom that goes back to the early 19th century um but i think juneteenth has offered this really nice sort of symbolic moment of recognition of the history of slavery and um the gradual destruction of slavery in this country
0: how was it celebrated in this country presumably in the north uh you know before the emancipation proclamation
1: Sure. So in the north, in the Midwest, um, and even as far west as California, um, free black communities in the 1840s and 1850s celebrated the end of the transatlantic slave trade, which the constitution outlawed as of 1808. Um, They celebrated the abolition of slavery in the British Caribbean colonies. Um, England abolished slavery in its colonies in the 1830s. And African-Americans in the United States celebrated that. Um, And then after January 1st, 1863, free black communities celebrated the Emancipation Proclamation uh, and what they believed was the dawn of the end of slavery in the U.S.
0: And was it largely a black uh, celebrated holiday? In other words, one that was not part of the larger, broader community that they lived in?
1: Um, it was primarily a black holiday in some instances, certainly by the 1850s and 1860s. It was one that was joined by white allies, um, white anti-slavery activists as well.
0: Hmm. And, and take us back to that, the original holiday the, or, the, or the date, Juneteenth, uh, June 19th, 1865. Why did it take two months for word to reach Galveston, Texas?
1: Sure. So it's less that word hadn't reached Galveston, Texas. Um, I'm pretty sure the news had reached Galveston, Texas. What had not really reached Texas in substantial numbers were union forces, right? Union military forces. Um,
0: so it couldn't be enforced.
1: So it couldn't be enforced, right? The Confederacy, Lee, Robert E. Lee surrendered in April of 1865. Um, forces, soldiers in Texas kept fighting. Hmm. Um, Which is not uncommon, right? Across the South, there certainly were slaveholders and confederates um, who, you know, were unwilling to lay down arms, unwilling to accept the defeat of the confederacy, and most importantly, unwilling to accept the end of slavery.
0: Yeah. And Professor Taylor, um, this is, I mean, I've heard about Juneteenth for many years, but it really got a new attention after the murder of George Floyd. Talk, to, talk about that and how that really gave impetus to Congress, where this you know idea of a national holiday had been discussed for a long time.
2: Well, I think you have to go back to President Trump. And when President Trump in 2020 threatened to go to Tulsa, Oklahoma on the on Juneteenth, as the Tulsa, Oklahoma community of African-Americans and others were organizing to celebrate, or not to celebrate, but to commemorate and observed the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race massacres, Donald Trump as president threatened to go to Tulsa on Juneteenth in the 100th anniversary as the community was planning for the next year to make this you know, observation of this tragic history that the state of Oklahoma barely uh, uh, recognizes and has always been reluctant to recognize, though it finally did. Um, so uh, the George Floyd moment uh, and the Don- and Donald Trump, I think, on one end, if you remember, there was an African-American Secret Service agent that told the president that would be a very bad idea to go to Tulsa uh, on Juneteenth. Uh, but the president was agitating that, and I think that provoked it. But then the George Floyd protest, and then the way the president acted toward mostly you know, young, you know, non-white people around the country in the George Floyd protest with the Bible episode. So I think all of that, um, Trump, Tulsa and George Floyd all came together. And, and I think we have to recognize that Juneteenth has a specific Texas history, but I think what we need to recognize now is in the 21st century, it's being adopted again and revived as a political observation, uh, as a political phenomenon. This is politics now, in addition to culture, this cultural celebration that's going on around San Francisco and Oakland is directly connected to the reparations movement. Yeah. And, if, and if anyone doesn't understand that that the, the Juneteenth is the spiritual culture of Black America at, activated in the interest of 21st century politics. Yeah. Blacks are using uh, Juneteenth, they revived it and gave it meaning that it did not have just five years ago. It, it still was sort of loosely, uh, you know, here and there, definitely observed in Texas. I observed, I I, I participated one in Fort Collins, Colorado where, where all whites had organized one about nine years ago and it was excellent. Uh, and I respected the fact that whites in Fort Collins, Colorado at Colorado State uh, actually had a Juneteenth and it was respectful. Uh, and that's what I think people want is respectful recognition from across the board. So again, the George Floyd moment, the watershed, the reckoning, all of that came together in an um, uh, uh, an inestimable way, uh, Scott, that that we can't really measure Mm -hmm. because it had a spiritual and emotional effect. And that's what is is surprising everyone. uh, Joe Biden was being responsive to that watershed. Biden was not leading the movement toward federal recognition. He jumped on it, to co-opt it, because he had no control over it. And this is his way of capturing it.
0: Well, and, and there was, did, did some of the opposition, or maybe all of the, most of the opposition anyway, from Republicans in Congress sort of melt away to allow it to become a federal holiday? Or was it one of those, you know, 50-50 votes?
2: Well, it seems like, you know, Joe Biden just went in his office and signed an edict, and it all of a sudden became a law, because it's not something that blacks were agitating for. They were talking about police reform and reparations. And Biden, much like FDR did with the left in terms of the New Deal, co-opted it by bringing it into the family, Hmm. not pushing it further away. He brought reparations under him. But I do think it provides an opportunity for well-meaning Americans who would like to see some kind of redress for the injury of slavery and all of the subsequent uh, injuries um, uh, to to be implemented. And so... I think what Juneteenth as a federal holiday does is it creates an opportunity for plaintiffs in cases um, to be able to argue to courts that the federal government recognizes in the 13th Amendment, but also in Juneteenth, that the injury of slavery was put upon blacks by the United States government and states and counties and cities, and consequently, there should be a remedy.
0: I, I want to come back to Professor Krauthammer, but first, you mentioned Trump going to Tulsa and that also inadvertently because I'm sure he didn't intend it but it it really shed a light on the whole destruction of the what, the, what they called Black Wall Street there right
2: absolutely and that that was the most devastating uh, part of it was this violence the racial violence was was so typical it happened in in Houston uh thinking about 1917 uh it happened in East St Louis uh East St Louis um Illinois in 18, 1917, then 1919 was Red Summer. If you Google the phrase Red Summer, the year 1919 will come up because of the massive race riots that happened because of World War One soldiers coming back after the war ended so quickly, they came back, g- ginned up the fight and they turned on the blacks and it, this is the lynching era. And so, um, you know, this was uh, a, a very difficult and violent time.
0: Hmm. And Professor Kronheimer, um, give us a sense of the Texas this was a Texas holiday first uh, and I, I forget the year it might have been 1980 that it was adopted there as a state holiday what it's a little it was a little surprising to me actually we don't think of Texas you know as being a particularly progressive state in in terms of racial, matters, but what made it uniquely Texas? I mean, obviously it celebrated something that happened in Galveston, but, you know, was there, is there something about the way it was celebrated there that was unique?
1: Um, Well, there's certainly things that are about the way it was celebrated in Texas that I think are important and telling about the richness of black history and, um, uh, as Professor Taylor mentioned also about the political undercurrents or bedrock of black history, if you will. Um, in places like Houston, right, which is one of the places that we see the early earliest incidences of um, Juneteenth celebrations, um, places like public parks, public streets, um, public spaces weren't accessible to black people. Right. Um, They were segregated. They were off limits. That ban on access was often enforced by violence. And so in places like Houston, Texas, and places like Austin, Texas, we see Black communities um, pooling their resources to purchase land, to create parks.
0: We're going to come back to that thought. We do need to take a break, and we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Tell us what Juneteenth means to you and your family and your community.
3: This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum.
4: Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? you left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network.
5: Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
0: And we continue our conversation about today's federal Juneteenth holiday. I'm Scott Schaefer, here this morning for Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Barbara Krauthammer. She's dean of the College of Humanities and Fine Arts and a professor of history at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Also with us, Professor James Taylor, a professor of political science at USF, also a member of the Reparations Task Force. And Orlando Williams, board member of Berkeley's Juneteenth Festival, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, How did you celebrate over the weekend, or how are you celebrating today? What does it mean to you, this Juneteenth holiday? Give us a call at 866-733-6786, or email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org, or you can find us on Twitter. Or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Um, I want to bring Orlando in in a second, but uh, Professor Krauthammer, uh, we had to go to a break. You were talking about the unique aspects of the holiday in uh, Texas. Uh, Pick up if you would.
1: Sure. So, Black communities in Texas and elsewhere in the South pooled their resources to purchase land to create parks, right? To create public spaces where Black folks could gather. And celebrate Juneteenth um, and other events safely because of segregation, right? Because of the Klan um, preventing Black people from accessing p- public areas in towns, um, and so the celebrations usually included um, speeches by local leaders, civic leaders, religious leaders, talking about the political issues of the day. Professor Taylor was talking about um, politics of our current moment, and Black people, you know, from the beginning of their presence in the United States, in North America, were talking about political issues of their day. So there was a solemn um, educational political component to the early celebrations. Hmm. And then afterwards, people broke for food and games and music. Um, black bands would p- perform. Black veterans were celebrated. Um, and it was an opportunity really to celebrate and recognize the strength and beauty of Black communities.
0: And was it something that uh, the broader political, you know, infrastructure of Texas white people in particular uh, participated in?
1: And um, in the early celebrations no, not really. Um, there are newspaper articles uh, with about white observers of the parades, often Black veterans, um, Black fraternal organizations would lead a parade, um, horses were decorated, there are beautiful pictures in the Houston Public Library of wagons and carriages decorated in flowers and banners, um, and it was really an opportunity for Black communities to celebrate their strengths, their beauty, their resilience, and also their political engagement with their local communities and with national politics.
0: Hmm. want to bring in Orlando Williams now. He's a board member with Berkeley's Juneteenth Festival. Let me give out the phone number again, because we would love to hear from you. Uh, It's 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Or if you prefer, you can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Or as always, we're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's at kqedforum. So, Orlando, tell us about the celebration in Berkeley. It was yesterday, right, this weekend?
6: Yes, it was yesterday. Thank you for having me. Um, uh, Yeah, it had been two years Um, Well, let me back up a little bit. Yesterday was the 35th annual Berkeley Juneteenth Festival. And forgive me, I'm still a little (laughs) uh, Mm -hmm. reeling from it. Um, But yeah, yesterday was, it was, it was so nice to have it back. Uh, It had been, again, two years since we had it. And I believe the person I was speaking before, and forgive me if I, I can't recall your name, but it is so important to have something like that for the community. And for uh, black folks to have a space to enjoy themselves, uh, again, just realizing how um, it wasn't for so long. Um, excuse me, we haven't had it for those two years.
0: Was it when online? We, did you have things online when during the pandemic?
6: You know we we did, and it it's, it didn't work. Yeah, <laughs> I just, you know, it, it it was it was a nice attempt. It, it, an honest attempt, but the gathering, holding space, seeing one another is is really the important piece. Mm-hmm.
0: Now you said it's uh, this was yesterday's was the 35th. So if my math is more or less right, which it often isn't, uh, you we're talking about what the late 1980s, 87 or so that you it was the first one. So how has it evolved? I'm not I, I'm, I, I'm guessing you weren't there for the first one, but you know how has it changed? Orlando. Uh, We're not hearing Orlando. We dropped off. So let me go back to uh, Professor Taylor then. Uh, Yeah. uh, You you were talking earlier about this connection now between Juneteenth and reparations. So make that connection a little more clear. You're saying that this it's sort of a reminder of uh, why reparations are needed and the harm that was done even after uh, legal freedom when enslaved people were no longer, you know, working for, you know, not working, they were enslaved. Uh, So that's the connection. It's sort of to make the case. It's kind of a point in the case for reparations.
2: Well, what I'm arguing is that in the 19th century, there's a specific Texas history related to uh, Juneteenth. I'm arguing that since the George Floyd protest, Black America, however you define that, has decided and chosen to make Juneteenth a symbol of the 21st century black movement as they mobilized to fight the rest of the 21st century for the next 75 years. I'm arguing that Juneteenth has become this organizing principle um, in terms of a cultural front, Scott. There are many fronts, military, economic, financial, um, but there's culture. And the one thing that African Americans have had across the board, no matter where they were in this country, is their culture, their religion, their spiritual culture. And when even after the Black presidency of Obama uh, and the current Black vice presidency of Kamala Harris, the one thing that still mobilizes Black America apart from elections is their spiritual culture. And Juneteenth is where they have chosen. I'm trying to help the audience understand. We're watching something unfold before our very eyes. Blacks out of nowhere made Juneteenth a holiday by their advocacy, and the government responded. Now, again, they weren't asking for it, but the president was watching what was happening on the ground in terms of this penetration and this pushing for reforms around law enforcement. And I think um, that's what we should understand is that Right now, we're witnessing a cultural politics. This relates to the monuments and the Confederate flags and all of the symbols of segregation and racism in the past, all of these things. In other words, Blacks don't have guns to the degree that the military or police do. What they do have is their nuclear bomb, if you will, as a metaphor, Scott, is their culture. And the cultural front is where Black America fights. And that's what you're seeing happen right now. And we don't know where it's going. It may end up being just another, you know, misused holiday observation where things get abused and sold and bought, or it may be the impetus for the mobilization of a future 21st century fight that has to be had because we're watching the opposition fight in their direction.
0: Hmm. Talking with uh, James Taylor, professor of political science at USF, and also Professor Barbara Crowdhammer with... Uh, The University of Massachusetts Amherst about Juneteenth, both the history of it and what it means today in 2022. We do want to hear from you. Give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786, or email us your questions and comments. It's forum at kqed.org. Here's a comment from David who writes, on Juneteenth, I'm thinking about what would have happened if the Civil War had resulted in two separate nations. I'd be very happy not to share a country with the South. And then another listener writes, I'm not African-American, and I'd like advice on how I can and should commemorate this holiday in a, in a way that is not performative, but still celebratory and respectful. Uh, thoughts about that, Professor Krautheimer?
1: Oh, um, yes, a lot of thoughts about that. Um, I think one of the persistent myths about the 19th century and the history of slavery is that it was exclusively Southern. Um, And in truth, right, slavery was a national phenomenon, as was um, the segregation and racism and violence that followed after the abolition of slavery. Um, So, you know, while on the one hand, I I appreciate the sentiment of um, not wanting to uh, have that history be a present part of our culture and daily life in this country, uh, I think it very much is, no matter where in the country we live. Um, We can find examples, for example, of uh, lynching almost in every geographic region in this country. Um, As for the the question about how to celebrate Juneteenth, I'd be, you know, welcome Professor Taylor's input as well. But what I would say to that listener is, you know, take this as an opportunity um, to learn something Right, to learn something about African-American history that you didn't know, whether it's about the history of slavery, whether it's about the history of a long freedom fight in the 20th century, um, whether it's about what's happening in your community now. I think, um, and we've seen the backlash against teaching African-American history and the history of race and racism recently. Mm. Mm. So I think one good way to be an ally
2: is to insist upon learning that history and talking about
0: it. Yeah, right? Professor Taylor, it's what we? Not- Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry.
2: Well, I think you're looking at an environment where critical race theory has, you know, there's been a backlash to it as an idea, the 1619 project as an idea, Um, you know, the environment, we just had affirmative action defeated in this state in November, right? Um, The environment is very hostile. Um, And I think, you know, again, you're sort of in a situation where um, Juneteenth is needed. White America needs Juneteenth as bad as anybody. White America, however you define that, needs healing around the crime um, and the, the ma'afa of slavery, as, as some call it, um, a, a similar word to the, the show up for the Jewish uh, uh, Holocaust, the ma'afa. Um, in other words, white America has never been healed for the crimes it committed against non-whites. Hmm. And, and the arrogance of the need not to do so is part of the meanness of right now. The arrogance and the anger of Trump is we've never had to apologize. White America, the government, the counties, the states have never had to break down in tears, you know, in a godly sorrow. In the way that New Zealand tried, and Australia tried, and even South Africa with the truth and reconciliation. At least they tried, no matter how imperfect. America is doubling down on its racism. Not all of it, but certainly we're seeing the Southern redemptionist reaction, you know, Charlottesville, Charleston, South Carolina, you know, we're just seeing, you know, um, Buffalo, uh, Charlottesville, I can name on and on the incidents that largely have followed the the election of the first black president. I mean, that's what we have to recognize is we're living in an era of racial backlash, no different than the 1870s. Uh, as soon as Blacks got free, there was racial backlash. When King and his movement mobilized in the 1960s, there was Ronald Reagan 12 years later, racial backlash. That's what I think we have to recognize. And so right now, in order, I think, Scott, for the country to go forward, I don't know if America has a whole lot left outside of its technology, right? What we're doing with computers. But spiritually, what do we have as Americans going forward? And I'm arguing that the healing of Black America through reparations, is the one thing that can make America great in the 21st century. And I don't mean to use that language in relationship to Trump in any way. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that America can still reach its highest height ever Mm -hmm. if it does right by Black people in the 21st century, because then it will resolve this unresolved, because it's still unresolved. And, and once we resolve it, then we can move forward deeply into the 21st century as a, as a country where race has you know been transformed as an idea in terms of controlling and dictating people's life chances. So, again, I want to say white people need healing from slavery, too. And mm-hmm. that's what H.R. 40, the bill put forth by John Conyers over 30 years ago, was trying to get at to study its impact, not just on blacks, but the, the meanness. The, the the real evil that we've seen in lynching violence and 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 just just, just one story Scott Bill Russell the great USF NBA basketball legend read the, his biography and you'll find out that his mother was a very beautiful black woman who was in the street one day dressed up and because she was dressed nicer than any white woman the the, the, the public square stripped her of her clothes mm. Bill Russell mm. on another occasion his father was getting gas. And decided not to wait for the white person in front of him in his car so he decides to move and the sheriff comes and puts a gun to bill russell's father's head and says and if you move out you'll die hmm. those are the there are so many everyday slights like that that we can't even enumerate even when we talk about reparations yeah. that i say america's largest, the the country needs healing as well as black America.
0: Well, and Professor Krauthammer, you you said a while ago uh, earlier in the hour that, uh, you know, white folks should take this holiday as an opportunity to learn something about history. And, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, understandably and maybe appropriately criticism of the South. uh, And, you know, obviously that's where slavery thrived. But, you know, California, which entered the country, as a, as a free state also allowed i believe and you know correct me if i'm wrong but i believe it it allowed southern states to um, return slaves who had escaped and come to california isn't that so so Cal, states like california are not completely uh, in any sense immune from from this history
1: right, absolutely absolutely um Many states are, no, no state is immune from from this history. Um, certainly slavery was legal in many Northern states and Midwestern territories. You know, they, slavery was abolished um, earlier in the Northern states, um, but there's still laws of segregation, right? Unequal access to employment, to education, to property ownership for men to the right to vote. Um, So you know, there's a long history of segregation and um, and supporting of slavery in different ways um, prior to the Civil War. And so I think, you know, when we talk about learning, I mean, I think that's something, again, that folks, you know, who want to be good allies can even learn about recent history. You don't have to go back to the 19th century, right? Go back to redlining districts um, and, you know, school segregation, right? Housing segregation, disparate access to health care. In our present day, I mean, I think there are lots of things, um, lots of places where we can see the legacies of slavery and racism and segregation Absolutely. in our present society. And,
2: and, and Scott, if I could jump in just real quick. Sure, sure. Um, you know, slavery under the Americans, under the Anglos, lasted from 1845 to 1865. It was 20 years, right? California deserves credit for sending delegates to Washington, D.C. to create itself as a free state in response to its sister, Texas, going in as a slave state. And then California turned around in 1852 and creates a Fugitive Slave Act. The main issue for blacks in California at this time was fugitivity, the the idea of being a runaway, because this is the last frontier. Utah and California, Utah is as far west as slavery came. Right. And so California is where you come to go free, right? California is where you would run away to get away from Texas and Utah. And then Texas is where, you know, California slaveholders would, you know, run and take their slaves. And Louisiana and Arkansas slaveholders also took their slaves to Texas. And you could see from 1850, for example, there were 58,000 blacks who were slaves in Texas. By 1860, it, it increases by 70,000 mm-hmm. to about hundred, 100, uh, uh, 182,000. Uh, it, it increased by 130,000. 130,000 slaves in Texas by the time of the Civil War. So the numbers increase. Texas, Mexico, as a country, abolished slavery under Guerrero in uh, six, 1829. And then, again, you have... Five different stages of California, Texas history, going from contact to the Spanish era, to the Mexico era, to the California era, to the Anglo era, and slavery changes in California under each circumstance. California is always a two-headed monster hmm. when it comes to race. Yeah. Yeah. It's very powerful. It created itself as a free state in response to Texas. On the other hand, it created fugitivity, and it also turned towards the Chinese and other uh, Native Americans and Mexicans and enslaved them. But slavery was not that important in the state of California.
0: Lots lots of history to learn. We're going to take a a quick break. I want to get in a quick comment here. Susan writes, I'm Jewish. We celebrate Passover, the beginning of the Jews' escape from slavery and the beginning of free people. At this time, year after year in my family, we discuss the present day ongoing slavery of black people at our Passover table I think the entire country needs to have a similar discussion with their families we're going to continue this conversation and we want to hear from you and we will go to the phones right after this break the number 866-733-6786 again 866-733-6786 or you can send your comments to forum at kqed.org Scott Schaefer here this hour for Alexis Madrigal much more to come And we continue our conversation now about this Juneteenth celebration, the first federal holiday, Since President Biden signed that into law. And we'd love to hear from you. 866-733-6786. My guests this hour, James Taylor, professor of political science at the University of San Francisco, also a member of the reparations task force in San Francisco. And Barbara Krauthammer, dean of the College of Humanities and Fine Arts and a professor of history at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. And let's go to the phones. And our first stop is Oakland And Deirdre. Welcome.
7: Hi. Thank you. Um, I'm a direct descendant of uh, folks from Louisiana and Texas and um, grew up in Richmond for some time. So if any Richmond listeners, I'm sure they're probably familiar with what I'm about to talk about. Um, There are many. I'm sure it's true all over the Bay Area for reasons mentioned by the by one of the one of your panelists. But there are a number of people from uh, from Texas, particularly eastern part of Texas and Richmond, that, uh, numbers, generations, I'm probably fourth generation from that community, mm-hmm. um, particularly Beaumont, Kilmore, mm-hmm. Kilgore and areas around in East Texas. And, uh, so I grew up with Juneteenth celebrations from the time I can remember like nine, eight years old going to, um, to areas in, um, in Montgomery Ward parking lot, the old Montgomery <laughs> Ward parking lot in Richmond where we would go and there were carnivals, there were, um, there were rides, there were, uh, there were there were parades. Uh, it's always been a very large um, and very um, very big part of my life growing up in um, in Richmond um, hmm. while a kid. And I just wanted to raise that because I heard about Berkeley having such <laughs> yeah. a long celebration. But I, I'm I'm pretty sure that uh, my experiences in Richmond date back. And I'm actually I'm actually if I can say I'm 53 years old. So these these celebrations go back well into the early 80s um, and, in my life growing up, and, and I'm sure well before that because by the time I was I was aware of it, they were they were going on long before. Yes, because uh, there are so many people from um, from Texas from those areas that raised their own crops, raised their own chickens, raised their own livestock, brought a lot of their. There are farming community um, connections uh, hmm. from that areas in Texas and um, into uh, into Richmond and in parts of Richmond are called Little Texas because hmm. of the huge concentration of folks from Texas.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a good reminder that obviously Berkeley, we did mention Berkeley earlier, but many other Bay Area cities have their own celebrations. And Deirdre, for you, was it was there where there a lot, sounds like a lot of maybe family stories about how it was celebrated uh, in Texas?
7: Oh, absolutely! Uh, lots of church services. Uh, in fact, even um, growing up in Richmond, uh, you go to church first thing that morning, um, and there's you know commemoration and knowledge, acknowledgement of um, of of uh, what ha- what there was. There were also annual baseball games um, that were celebrated. You know that you know that certain teams would play each other. So Those historical baseball games um there were uh, you know in some areas of Texas they would have you know like like the pageantry that you would see in other um, cultures you would have in, in, in our culture. So you'd have lots of pageantry whether you'd have people who are named um, as uh, having like some some um, some uh, connection in a community through community service or something like that. those people were oftentimes acknowledged during those uh, during that weekend. And given some um, recognition by the community for their for their public service, it was a way to uplift public service. It was a way to uplift um, achievement um, in in our community. Uh, so it was a it was a number of things that went on um, with that celebration. And yeah. for us kids, it was a time to have a lot of good, a lot of fun and. Um, go to the same. It was always the same carnival rides. I remember it. We parking lot. It was nothing changed over many years, but it was still a day that you know our great grandfather would walk us by hand. Nice. Um, nice. and he's always told us, "Wake, sugar, look on the ground." That people always leave money on the ground, so we would uh, pick up all the silver coins and um, that other kids would leave and show them how much we <laughs> we were able to. It was just all those fun little. Things I remember by my uh, 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 memories with my great grandfather when he would walk us, yeah. um, and he was well into his uh, 70s and 80s when he would do this walk us from our home all the way to uh, Montgomery Ward. Wow, um, great, and, great and memories. Time have.
0: Well, thank you. Thanks for sharing that with us. Really appreciate it, Deirdre, and uh, happy, happy Juneteenth. Um, and, you know, Professor Taylor Deirdre's comments remind me that, yes, there is a big migration to the Bay Area, uh, California generally, I guess, but really the Bay Area, San Francisco from Texas, and I'm thinking probably one of the most prominent, Willie Brown, uh, but uh, one of many, Mineola. right? What's that?
2: Mineola, Texas. Mineola,
0: Texas. we heard that story many times.
2: Absolutely. But I think you can find that in the West Coast in general, that Blacks from Texas and Louisiana populated uh, West Coast uh, cities and, and towns. Um, Oakland, for example, has a, a large population, it's early Black population um, that came in the World War II period from Monroe, Louisiana. Uh, Huey Newton's family is from Monroe. Many of the Blacks that came you know, that migrated, much like Latinos from different countries, they don't just migrate anywhere in America. They go to where other people from their country, Venezuelans go where Venezuelans are, Salvadorans go where Salvadorans are, right? And Texans went where Texans settled. And in California, you know, you had the black Texans settle in the South and in the North. What a lot of people don't know is much of the pro-Confederate forces of America that migrated West Migrated in the southern parts of California, and this is why in 1920 the Klan was so strong in Southern California. But you also had a contingent up here in Northern California. But you almost had this racial divide in California, where the segregationist pro-slavery element was in Southern California, and you had this sort of anti, this sort of abolitionist um, disposition here in Northern California. And I think an important person to mention real quickly is Mary Ellen Pleasant. You know, when John Brown died, when they caught John Brown on October 16th, 1859, John Brown had in his pocket initials MEP. If you Google the the tombstone of Mary Ellen Pleasant, you'll read on it, friend of John Brown. Mm -hmm. Mary Ellen Pleasant, more than Harriet Tubman, was a woman of that era who used her money from San Francisco, leading 400 Blacks with $2 million, they funded the Underground Railroad East. Hmm. In the same way we look at King in the 20th century as sort of fueling the movement from Atlanta and Alabama out to the rest of America, very few people appreciate that Black San Francisco was Black America's civil rights movement in the 1850s. And when the state got, you know, The state of California, we don't have time to establish all of its history in terms of its race as we talked about some of it, but be clear, it came to a point around one case related to fugitivity where about 800 blacks left, uh, I think on Pier 24 under Gavin Newsom, I was a part of a committee that commemorated this, they left from Pier 24 and went to Vancouver, British Columbia because of a case of fugitivity here in San Francisco. Hmm. So there's a very powerful civil rights history here in San Francisco way before the modern era, you have to understand Mary Ellen Pleasant as well as Martin Luther King. Hmm.
0: Wow. Great history lesson here this morning. Let's go back to the phones now, and we're going to go to Oakland. And Maddie, welcome to Forum.
8: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm just loving all of these conversations. I just wanted to have a brief comment. Um, I moved to Oakland 10 years ago from Seattle, Washington, and there's a thriving Black a history and black population there, but it is a very white city compared to Oakland. So I just wanted to reiterate that Oakland is really considered a black mecca, and for me, that's why I moved here. And one of my favorite memories is going to an event uh, put on by Afrocentric Oakland called Fam Bam, and it was for Juneteenth. It is for Juneteenth. I went yesterday. And it's just like a celebration, not just of African-American culture, but also just all the different diasporic ways that we, we come together. And for, this, for me, this day isn't just about celebrating the culture. It's also about talking about how culture has a tangible um, economic value, right? So Black culture has a real economic value. It makes cities interesting and places that are vibrant and places where people want to come and go to, right? And um, one thing we need to acknowledge is that Oakland has lost a very substantial amount of its Black population. And so, I think if you're a white person, if you or if you're wondering how to celebrate this day, if you're non-black, it's really about money. It's putting your money where you know your the culture is, and really investing in black artists, investing in black businesses. Um, for me, one of the things that I've been really working on is thinking about the racial wealth chasm, which has actually gotten really. It's it's the same. I think it might be the same amount that it was in the 1960s. Um, I don't call it a racial wealth gap; I call it a racial wealth chasm. And I've been working around student loan debt because black women disproportionately are affected by it so that's just one area that I personally um, am an activist around but you can really get in where you fit in. And I just wanted to reiterate that because I just have so much love for Oakland as a city and how much it's taught me and how it's taught me to be part of the solution. So thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much. Oakland, uh, definitely one of the more most diverse places in the Bay Area and, like so many places, losing some of its black population, as is, of course, San Francisco, which has been for years because of uh, the affordability crisis and other other issues like urban renewal and the western edition and the whole jazz district uh, there as well in the fillmore lots of history to remember let's go back to the phones and let's go to amy in uh, berkeley you're next welcome
5: hi there i'm just loving this program thank you so much for all of this um rich history and in regards to the uh The civil rights movement here in San Francisco, um, I wanted to reiterate also what your um, guest was talking about. Uh, My father, in 1964, was arrested as part of um, huge protests that were happening, uh, fighting the racial discrimination, particularly against Black people, in employment. And they targeted the um, big auto dealerships, the Lincoln dealership. My dad was arrested at the Cadillac dealership. There was one day In April, when 226 protesters were arrested for those sit-ins, and many of them did actually spend quite a bit of time in jail after many appeals and um, at the San Bruno jail, which was also horrific, um, Hmm. you know, were were sentenced and and actually doing hard labor there even. But I I just wanted to talk about that also um, to encourage as, you know, a white Jewish person who grew up with a tradition that I carry on also Um, protesting in solidarity with Mm. people who are facing the worst of racism in our society.
0: Yeah. Amy, thanks so much for sharing that. Much appreciated. Um, Let's uh, read some listener comments here as well. Uh, Forum is offering serious, illuminating stuff. Love to hear it. But also let's talk about food. Juneteenth is a big... Feast with friends and family. What are some of the delectable recipes you enjoy? And we should make uh, without cultural misappropriation. Uh, Another listener tweets, lived in Berkeley 13 years but did not know about Berkeley Juneteenth. Uh, Sang with a classical chorus. They're mostly white folks. Never thought of going to the Pride Parade as I wasn't open with my queerness. What should we do to break the silos? Be better allies. All good questions. Uh, and then Miriam tweets, uh, this discussion should include the continuation of slavery in the form of mass incarceration and free labor in private prisons. Miriam, I'm, I'm really glad you tweeted that. And, uh, you know, Professor Taylor, you're probably aware that there is a bill in the legislature right now to end um, the exception for indentured servitude or, uh, or involuntary servitude, which is now used in prisons not just, you know, uh, you know privately held prisons, but public prisons for inmate labor. Pretty controversial. Um, what are your thoughts about that and ending that exception for pun, as pun- for punishment in allowing that kind of uh, um, you know, uh labor, forced labor?
2: Well, yeah, it, it actually reflects what the Thirteenth Amendment allows in in the um in the clause um that says except it be for punishment of crime. Um and yeah, you have I, I don't agree with the idea that slavery uh is the seed for mass incarceration at all. Uh, Nobody in America was mass incarcerated before 1970, no group. So I think it's just bad history Hmm. to try to connect slavery to mass incarceration. Hmm. Mass incarceration is a response to Martin Luther King, not Harriet Tubman. Hmm. Get it straight. That's 100 years apart and nobody was mass incarcerated from the 1870s to the 1970s. Not Blacks, not Irish, not the Italians, not immigrants, nobody. So we need to get that straight. Mass incarceration is a post-70s reality that comes in part in response to the uprisings of the 60s in the cities, the Black Panther Party here in the Bay Area, um, and just general fear. And it starts with the Democrats. And that's what I think we need to be clear when we talk about Chester Boudin and the recent backlash from Democrats, which is sort of a tough-on-crime response against the more left, progressive Democrats, is that LBJ is the father of law and order, not Nixon. Mm.
0: Nixon well, comes, and you Nixon can't, comes after. Yeah, and, so, and let's not forget yeah. Joe Biden when he
2: was in the right. Senate. Right. No, and, and Joe Biden comes and much Bill later. Bill
0: Clinton. Yeah. That's yeah. right.
2: They, that's right. That, that's the genealogy of it. You're absolutely right. But I think we have to understand that when we're looking at law and order. And then the de- Republicans in 88 with Willie Horton and George Bush turned it into tough on crime. But we need to realize Democrat centrists have separated themselves from progressives and left radicals by the crime issue. So Democrats are you know, not liberal on crime, they're moderate under Biden. And that goes from how, for example, London Breed you know, two years ago was you know, in line with defunding the police. And now she's, you know, on a very different position in terms of, you know, what the current environment is. The the environment has changed in two years against, as a backlash against the George Floyd sort of um, uh, uh, watershed moment. And, 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 And again, I think we need to recognize in terms of history, it's bad history to try to make the 13th Amendment the seed for mass incarceration. Martin Luther King and the 60s was the seed for the next 25, 40 years of of punishment and the carceral state that emerges.
0: All right, let's go back to the phones now. We're going to go to San Francisco, and Bill, you're next. Welcome.
6: Hi, guys. Uh, Hi, Dr. Taylor. I love Forum. Um, I'd like to hear more about Mary Ellen Pleasant. I would recommend maybe Forum do a whole hour about her. There's a great book I'd like to recommend Maybe get Dr. Taylor's uh, opinion on it. It's called The Making of Mammy Pleasant Hmm. by Lynn M. Hudson. Uh, It's in the library. It's a really great book about – it's a biography of her from being born a slave and ending up here in San Francisco.
0: Hmm.
6: I think she died right around uh, 1906, something like that. Yeah, Professor – a real incredible story.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm holding in my hand uh, the winter 2021 copy of the Journal of the San Francisco Historical Society called the Argonaut, which I wrote the introduction. I I was the guest editor of it. And on the front cover is Mary Ellen Pleasant. And throughout the art, in fact, the whole uh, edition, again, that's the winter 2021 edition of the Argonaut. It covers Mary Ellen Pleasant and Northern California. It, it covers the history of black people in, in San Francisco during the 19th century, including the history I cited earlier, leading to people uh, going to come uh, Vancouver, British Columbia out of frustration.
0: Yeah, Bill, thanks very much for that. Uh, Professor Crowther. I want to ask you, uh, you know, there is some criticism of the evolution of G- Juneteenth in the sense that it has become commercialized. I mean, Walmart, I think, introduced a Juneteenth-themed ice cream, and they had to apologize for some of the representation of that. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts about that and how companies, and this is not unusual, it's happened with, you know, gay pride as well. Companies want to be part of it. They want to get the dollar, right? They want to get... Uh, cash in, in a sense.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think you said it perfectly, right? Companies want to cash in on um, on on these cultural moments, right? These cultural moments that are enjoying widespread attention, widespread popularity. Um, you know, that's the nature of the beast um, of corporate America. Um, you know, that is not where my personal interest in Juneteenth lies. As a historian, it's not where it lies. The Walmart ice cream thing was... Clearly, an unmitigated disaster. Um, but I think you know th- this happens with every holiday, and so I'm a little cautious about singling out Juneteenth as oh, this is why we should be wary of Juneteenth. Yeah. Right. Memorial Day. Memorial Day, which everybody loves a barbecue and a parade on Memorial Day, yeah. began in 1865 as a tribute to black
0: soldiers. Yeah, and well, and of course you can go on and on. I mean, Thanksgiving, of course, people can't even enjoy Thanksgiving dinner anymore because they're all going shopping. Well, we are out of time, but what a what a terrific conversation. Thank you so much. James Taylor, professor of political science at the University of San Francisco, member of the reparations task force here in San Francisco as well. And Barbara Krauthammer, dean of the College of Humanities and Fine Arts and a professor of history at University of Massachusetts Amherst. Thank you so much. For a very enlightening and interesting and fun hour and we're gonna thank you so much happy juneteenth everybody and stick around for another hour of forum with mina kim i'm scott schaefer thanks so much for listening
7: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
3: This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way.
4: So, I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? you left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions
5: apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
2: Hey, John Favreau
0: here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it.